You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate. What does it mean to be delivered from economic oppression and ecological oppression as well? Uh, The UN reported last week that we have only 12 years left to address climate change. And if we don't, we're going to face dire consequences. This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to episode 264 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. It's a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee might have to offer us today in our work of survival, resistance, liberation, reparation, and transformation. Our title this week is Deliverance from Evil, and our feature text is Matthew 6.13, and lead us not into the time of testing, but deliver us from evil. So as we wrap up our look over the past few weeks of of what we call the Lord's Prayer, I wanted to begin uh, this week with a story of a a dear West Virginia woman, her children, and her husband in context of this deliverance from evil that we're going to be looking at. Um, There's a type of coal mining here in West Virginia called mountaintop removal, and it's legal here, and it's happening in much of the the southwestern region. Region of the state. Many of our elected representatives, even, they're financially supported by coal mine owners who, who profit from, from how uh, th- those representatives structure our laws here in the state. And this is the story of a family who's involved in trying to change some of these laws. And, and listen to how uh, the mother of this family tells her story Coal miners work in the coal mines because they have no other choice. Others because they enjoy that type of work. Most coal miners have college degrees in many things, yet coal mining is the only thing we have to offer them. My husband has a degree in electronics engineering and 1,080 credit hours in industrial electronics, but his only choice was to become a coal miner. He worked in the mines for two years. The toll it took on his body that was heartbreaking. When he would come home from work, he looked like death in the face. He worked 12 hours a day, six days a week. The kids and I only saw him on Saturdays and half a day on Sundays. His skin was stained black and he coughed constantly consistently and constantly as if he had the flu. I was eight months pregnant with our son the day the UBB mine disaster happened. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with this history here in West Virginia, um, I'll put a link to it in this week's e-site. But she continues, I had laid down to take a nap. When I got up, the cell phone had 10 missed calls and 20 text messages on it. The calls and messages were from my two oldest daughters and my sister her, asking if my husband was working. I called my 15-year-old first and asked what was wrong. She was in a total panic and crying, wanting to know if her stepdad was okay, that a mine just blew up and 12 at the time miners were trapped. The news didn't report which mine or its location until later. When I informed her he was okay and was getting ready for work, she responded no. Don't let him go back to work today, Mommy. Please. I got her to calm down, then called my 19-year-old and got the same response. Mommy, please don't let him go to work. It broke my heart in two, knowing that he had to go to work to pay bills and take care of our babies. But what hurt the most was the fear and heartbreak that my children were feeling. 
Anyway, I turned on CNN and started to watch the heartbreaking events unfold. I knew that come 9 p.m., my miner would be walking out the door to go to work. But somehow this night was different than all the other nights I told him goodbye. I had a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach that I had never felt before in my life. The mining pay was great. It gave us tons of nice things and plenty of money to provide for our family. But at that moment, I didn't care if we had a dime in the bank and had to live in a tent. I was sending the love of my life, my best friend and my children's father, out the door, not knowing if he would ever come back. He was killing his body, he was risking his life to provide for us with worldly things, things that could be replaced. After he left, I sat and watched CNN until daylight, waiting on his morning call, letting me know he was coming home. Thank God in heaven I received that call. As the evening went on, I continued to watch the events as at UBB unfold. As I watched the miner's family standing, praying, and waiting on the news of their miner, it broke my heart. I will never forget the look on one young man's face when a reporter asked him how he was feeling. What a stupid question. His response was, it feels like I'm getting punched over and over in the stomach. I knew at that moment I didn't want my son or daughters to ever experience that feeling. Two days later, he decided to leave the mines. It has been eight months now since my husband quit. We're all doing fine. We may not have as much money as before, but we do not but we do have the most important thing to our family, and that's daddy. I just wish our elected officials would see that West Virginia's most valuable resource is our miners themselves and not the coal. But I'm afraid that they will continue to fight for the coal baron's wallets and the campaign funding as long as they keep them in the coal. Our politicians will be fine. Please keep our West Virginia coal miners in your thoughts and prayers and never forget the ones we have lost in Sago, UBB, and other places. And I'll put a, a, a link to the source for that story in this week's east side as well jesus envisioned a world where people were valued over profit over property and over power and that's where this week's portion of the lord's prayer comes in this is a prayer for for liberation this week's portion of the prayer begins with lead us not into the time of testing and a time of testing it was a familiar concept in in the jewish tradition in uh, deuteronomy 8 2 it reads remember how the lord your god led you all the way into the wilderness in these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And you can find similar passages in Exodus 16.4, Ecclesiastes 3.18, Isaiah 48.10, and Zechariah 13.9. In the Psalms, we read, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did in the day of Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me and tried me, though they had seen what I did. And that's Psalms 95.8-9. And you can uh, cross cross-reference that with the same in Psalms 106.14. So it seems from these passages that in the Jewish tradition, both humans and God could be tested. Humans could be tested by God and God could be tested by humans. And yet, yet, yet regardless of who was testing whom, uh, people in, in Jesus's day understood the idea of a time of testing. And, and in the time of the, the first century Jewish-Roman war, the zealots, and, and I'll put a link, uh, you can see uh, our article on our website, Faith Like a Mustard Seed, if you want more information, more background. 
on, on this group. The, the zealots, they also use this phrase of a time of testing. And Josephus tells us how the, the zealots used this idea of a, a test for one's faith. And he writes of, of incidents during the, the mid-first century when revolutionary prophets or zealots would, would, lead, they would lead large groups of people into a desert outside Jerusalem on the premise that if they, they were the ones to initiate and take that first step, if they submitted to the testing, then God would see their faith and, and respond by bringing them liberation from, from Roman oppression. And Felix, the Roman uh, procurator, he regarded these gatherings as, as the first stage of revolt. And so uh, in, in Josephus's uh, The Jewish War, page 147, he writes of how Felix sent a cavalry and heavy infantry into one group uh, that was doing just this, and he cut the mob into, into pieces. And the most infamous of the revolutionary prophets who, who promised the, the people reward if they would first step out in faith, if they would engage this test, was a, a militaristic messiah referred to as the Egyptian. You can find him in Acts 21, uh, 38. And Josephus describes the event as follows. Arriving in the country, this man, a fraud, who posed as a seer, collected about 30,000 dupes, led them around from the desert to the Mount of Olives, and from there was ready to force an entry into Jerusalem, overwhelm the Roman garrison, and seize supreme power with his fellow raiders as bodyguards. And again, that's the Jewish War, page 147. Josephus believed the, the future of the Jewish people depended instead, unlike the zealots, he believed it depended on, on the elites collaborating with Rome rather than rebelling against Rome. And most scholars think that he exaggerated these numbers, uh, the number of people involved. This 30,000 dupes in the book of Acts, it only says there was about 4,000. But but the fact that he mentions the, the event at all, it, it, that's important. In, in a parallel account, Josephus includes uh, uh, the, the sign that this rebel had claimed would be shown to the people if they passed the test of going out to assemble. And it was supposed to be a, a sign like Joshua's at the Battle of Jericho, and, and at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall down so that his followers would, it would enter and seize the city. But, but before he could make the, his signal, again, the Roman cavalry and the infantry, they slew and captured hundreds and, and put the rest to flight, including the, the militaristic Messiah himself. That You can find that story in Josephus's Antiquities, page 170 through 170. But liberation prophets like the Egyptian, they frame the people's act of taking an initiative, taking that first step despite hopeless odds as, as a time of testing, as a, a test of faith that their God would, would honor with liberation from Rome if they would take that initial step. Jesus grew up in the wake of a similar destruction that Rome had wrought on, on revolutionaries in Zipporah. And I believe that this played a role in Jesus. Jesus seeking a, a different path towards liberation than, than violence, one that incorporated the best odds of survival and, and, and wouldn't just be about the liberation of Jerusalem and Galilee and Judea, but also about the end of, of socio-political structures of, of domination for humanity as a whole. Gustavo Gutierrez, he writes about this at length in his book that uh, we were reading last month, The Theology of Liberation, 50th Anniversary 
edition, page 134 through 135, uh, he, he, uh, he writes, This universality and totality touch the very heart of political behavior, giving it its true dimension and depth. Misery and social injustice reveal a sinful situation, a disintegration of fellowship and communion. By freeing us from sin, Jesus attacks the roots of an unjust order. For Jesus, the liberation of the Jewish people was only one aspect of a universal permanent revolution. Far from showing no interest in this liberation, liberation, Jesus rather placed it on a deeper level with far-reaching consequences. The zealots were not mistaken in feeling that Jesus was simultaneously near and far away. Neither were the leaders of the Jewish people mistaken in thinking that their position was imperiled by the preaching of Jesus, nor the oppressive political authorities when they sentenced him to die as a traitor. They were mistaken, and their followers have continued to be mistaken, only in thinking that it was an accident it was all accidental and transitory, in thinking that with the death of Jesus the matter was closed, in supposing that no one would remember it. The deep human impact and social transformation that the gospel entails is permanent and essential because it transcends the narrow limits of specific historical situations and goes to the very root of human existence, relationship with God in solidarity with other persons. The gospel does not get its political dimension from one or another particular option, but from the very nucleus of its message. If the message is If this message is subversive, it is because it takes on Israel's hope. The kingdom, as the end of domination of person over person, it is a kingdom of contradiction to the established powers on behalf of humankind. And the gospel gives Israel's hope its deepest meaning. Indeed, it calls for a new creation. The life and preaching of Jesus postulate the unceasing search for a new kind of humanity in a qualitatively different society. Although the kingdom must not be confused with the establishment of a just society, this does not mean that it is indifferent to this society, nor does it mean that this just society constitutes a necessary condition for the arrival of the kingdom, nor that they are close nor that they are closely linked, nor that they converge. More profoundly, Follow what he says. The announcement of the kingdom reveals to society itself the aspiration for a just society and leads it to discover unsuspected dimensions and unexplored paths. The kingdom is realized in a society of fellowship and justice. And in turn, this realization opens up the promise and hope for complete communion of all persons with God. The political is grafted into the eternal. This does not detract from the gospel news. Rather, it enriches the political sphere. Moreover, the life and death of Jesus are no less evangelical because of their political connotations. His testimony and his message acquire this political dimension precisely because of the radicalness of their salvific character. To preach the universal love of the Father is inevitably to go against all injustice, all privilege, all oppression, and narrow nationalism. 
And I think that's a powerful passage. That's from, uh, uh, again, Theology of Liberation, uh, page 134 through 135. Jesus promoted a path toward liberation that parted ways with the methods of the zealots, and it parted ways with the methods of the uh, elite Sadducees who were desiring just to cooperate with Rome and hope for, for greater representation within a system of exploitation. Jesus sought an entirely different way to structure human society. Jesus presented a restructuring of, of the norms that we use to interact with one another. And at the heart of these new norms was a, a preferential option for the vulnerable, for the exploited, and for the marginalized. And it, it doesn't mean for Jesus followers um, that that they seek to gain political power in order to control others. It means we stand in solidarity with those whom political power is being used against to, to, to bring them liberation. What does it mean for a Jesus follower today to, to follow that path? What does it look like? And what does it mean for, for coal mining families here in West Virginia to, to be delivered from, from the, the evil of, of corporate oppression where the owners continue to gain more and more while the majority of the people struggle without being able to make ends meet? And what does it mean to be delivered from economic oppression and ecological oppression as well? Uh, the UN reported last week that we have only 12 years left to address climate change. And if we don't, we're going to face dire consequences. A prayer for deliverance from evil, it also has its implications uh, for the evil of, of bigotry. The, the Bigotry like the many in the LGBTQ community face or, 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 or what we might expect to be delivered from the evils of, of racism or the evils of sexism or deliverance from the evils of misogyny or the evil of patriarchy uh, and more. Jesus, who, whose teachings we follow, he stood in the Jewish tradition that traced its roots of liberation all the way back to Moses' alignment with the toiling masses of slaves. And, and so what's our work today? What injustice or evil are, are you staring at this week? And what does it mean to work towards deliverance from evil in your context? What does it mean to work in solidarity with other communities who are affected most deeply by these evils as they also work toward their deliverance? And, and I'll close this week with a statement by Dorothy Day that encourages me when when I feel like our small efforts are just insignificant and I feel like a, a world structured in, in a way that answers Jesus's prayer in Matthew is so far, far away. She writes, and this is from Catholic Worker, September 1957. She writes, one of the greatest evils of the day is the sense of futility. Young people say, what can one person do? What is the sense of our small effort? They cannot see that we can only lay one brick at a time, take one step at a time. We can be responsible only for the one action of the present moment, but we can beg for an increase of love in our hearts that will vitalize and transform these actions and know that God will take them and multiply them as Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes. So this week, choose something to do, no matter how large or or small, lay that one brick and, 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 and may your actions align 
with with Jesus's prayer in Matthew, lead us not into a time of testing, but deliver us from evil. Matthew 6, 13. Heart group application this week. Uh, Sharing our stories is how we heal the world. And hearing one another's stories, it empowers us to, to let go of our fear of one another and enter into compassion toward one another. And listening to the diverse experiences of one another's lives, it leads us to replace our our insecurities with a, a much broader understanding of each other and of our larger world. So number one, this week, I want you to take some time in your heart group and, and let those who wish to share just simply tell their story to the group. And then number two, we here at Renewed Heart Ministries, we also want to hear your story. We're asking our followers to share their stories with us right now. Um, how has this ministry impacted your life for the better? How have you been blessed by Renewed Heart Ministries? How has journeying alongside of RHM inspired you or, or made a difference for you? We want to hear your story. And if you give us permission, we may also feature your story in, in, in one of our upcoming newsletters or an e-site or even a podcast uh, uh, so that your story can help others too. But but again, that's only if you give us permission. You can send uh, your story of how you've been positively impacted uh, by uh, Renewed Heart Ministries by emailing info at renewedheartministries.com. And then number three, consider making storytelling a part of your heart group experience on some type of ongoing basis, either monthly or quarterly, or for some even weekly, depending on the size of your group. But, but uh, incorporate Incorporate storytelling, sharing with each other your story into your time together. We believe every person's story matters and every poor person's voice uh, has value. The, the Jesus of the Gospels, he spent the majority of his teaching uh, by telling stories. And, and author Sue Monk Kidd in her book, The Secret Life of Bees, she states the stories, stories have to be told or they die. And when they die, we can't remember who we are or why we're here. Also, uh, don't forget about our, our, our shared table fundraiser for the month of October. Uh, you can find out how you can participate and, and get your own shared table pottery bowl uh, uh, in the link that I'll provide. Or you can just go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and you'll see it right there on our website. But uh, it's a representation of Jesus's shared table uh, philosophy of, of doing life together. If someone wanted to actually use one of these pottery bowls, uh, they can. They're they're made by Crystal and, or, or myself. And you uh, and again, by all means, you could use it. But each time you eat from the bowl or you use it as a serving dish, um, you can be reminded of Jesus's shared table of mutual aid and, and philosophy of resource sharing as a, a means of restructuring our communities and healing the hurts in our world. And if you don't use it, you could just place it on your coffee table or or a desk at work. And this is the the, the significant part. Use it as a conversation starter. When, when asked about it, you can share with them about the, the shared table philosophy philosophy and even direct them to to Renewed Heart Ministries to to find out more. And that way you can partner with us in even more ways to to spread the message of love, compassion, justice, and sharing and taking care of one another. Again, you can find out more by just going to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and clicking on the picture there, a shared table, a fundraiser for RHM. Thanks for checking in with us this week, wherever you are. Keep living in love, in survival, uh, resistance, liberation, reparation and transformation. Another world is possible. Keep believing that. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. 